Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Joel Schwartz. Joel is a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice in the South Bay of Los Angeles County. He specializes in therapy and testing for the misunderstood. As a therapist, he is warm, compassionate, and strongly humanistic, allowing for all the oddities and unexplored aspects of his clients to emerge and be validated. As a testing psychologist, Dr. Schwartz specializes in difficult and complex cases. Dr. Schwartz grew up in Southern California. He developed an early interest in psychology, strangely enough, from a childhood filled with science fiction stories. These stories often provided fascinating looks into human psychology and the human spirit. Dr. Schwartz attended UCLA as an undergrad where he conducted research in the field of neurolinguistics. From there, he attended Yeshiva University's Furkhoff School of Clinical Psychology for his master's and doctorate degree. He's worked in various settings, including colleges, clinics, a federal prison, and residential treatment centers. Through his experience with a vast array of individuals, he has struck with one important lesson among many. As the psychoanalyst Harry Stack Sullivan once said, we are all more human than otherwise. This really was a great conversation where we explore various facets of neurodiversity, Some of the highlights include Joel's Jewish roots and how this has impacted his understanding of therapy and social justice. 
foundations of a neurodivergent affirming practice. We talk about the autistic scholar Damian Milton and his idea of the double empathy problem. We explore Nick Walker's neuroqueer theory. We explore humanistic goals in therapy. Joel's future vision for his neurodiversity affirmative therapist group on Facebook. And we look at the developmental approach of Lev Vygotsky and many, many more things. Guys, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Joel was very articulate and inspiring, and you can tell he has a tremendous passion uh, for this community and for his clients. I know that I learned a lot. I've really enjoyed researching him and everyone he's into. I know that I've become a better person and a sharper therapist because of it. I hope that I can connect with him in the years to come because I know I have so much to learn from him. As always, I really hope this conversation will inspire you to connect with someone in your life, whether it's a friend or a parent or a teacher or a spouse or a child. Go out, connect with them, and discuss some of the ideas that we explored in this episode. I know that they're challenging. I know that they're inspiring. And hopefully, they can be one piece of your life that helps you think of ways to begin to change the world, because that's what it's all about. As always, I want to encourage everyone that listens to go to Apple Podcasts to leave a rating and a review. And please share this episode and all of my contact, all of my content, excuse me, with your friends and family. As always, guys, continue the conversation. So, Joel, thank you so much for being a part of my podcast, Therapy for Guys. It's really great to sit down with you and have this conversation this afternoon. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. I I love what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so would you mind just giving the, the listeners a sense of who you are, maybe what you do professionally, maybe a couple of your interests, and then from there we can jump into the conversation? Sure. I'm uh, uh, Joel Schwartz. I'm a clinical psychologist by uh, trade and training. Um, I have a small group practice that I run with my wife in uh, Central California, where we specialize in uh, therapy and assessment from a neurodiversity affirming standpoint. Um, I'm sure we can get into what that means later. Yes. Um, um, 
Yeah, I do trainings worldwide uh, on neurodiversity, autism, and ADHD, more specifically, uh, uh, building a consulting business around this kind of stuff. Um, I run a Facebook group, Neurodiversity Affirmative Therapists, that we have about 18,000 members now. Um, I myself am an ADHD uh, person, and my wife is autistic, and we have uh, two autistic uh, children together. Um, stepchildren for me, but I help raise them. And uh, we have a very weird, fun, interesting family as a result. And uh, we love what we do. Um, aside from that, uh, my interests are music and movies. And um, I have a huge vinyl collection. Oh, that's and, awesome. What kind of music yeah, do you like? Everything. Everything. everything? Yeah, one one foot firmly in the punk and metal. Oh yeah, life. that that's my favorite. Um, yeah, but I also like I uh, my I can listen to Frank Sinatra one second and Guar the next. Oh yeah, and everything oh, that's, in between. That's great. You know, I, I always uh, I don't know if it. I hope it doesn't seem like it's flexing. It, it's not my collection, but I have a good friend who I've actually had on the podcast who sort of sells. Uh, vinyl for a living on discogs and he has in his uh garage sort of studio like office over a hundred thousand records so it's always uh an experience to to see that i have around 550 probably and we are running out of room rapidly so i cannot imagine <laughs> somebody with a hundred my god yeah no it's it's unbelievable I, I at first i didn't believe him until he showed me <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a massive amount of space. Yes. <laughs> Got to buy a warehouse. Yes. So, okay, Joel, where, where I really want to start is kind of in your childhood. And, and I have a very specific question, and I want to kind of set it up a little bit. Um, a couple months ago, I had Dr. Laura Brown on the podcast, you know, who's a, a pioneer in feminist therapy and and even lately really thinking about therapy kind of as a social justice reality and you know she has deep jewish roots she, she would say that for her and and her practice some of those jewish roots really shape how she thinks about things so i was just sure. curious if your jewish roots had any impact on how you see yourself and and how you think about your practice and and even social justice well yeah well yes i think that's that's right on um a fundamental, fundamental values of Judaism, and and I should I should say that I'm not a traditional Jew by any means. Um, you know, I I, st I still consider myself part of the community. It's a huge part of my identity. Um, but I'm and you know we light the candles as a family weekly. But I'm not religious, and I do not believe in a patriarchal. God, um, if you can excuse the uh, the uh, uh, profaneness of what I'm about to say. No, please go I, profane. That's the best but, stuff. <laughs> but I, what I like to say to people is I believe that there's something higher in the universe. I don't think it gives a shit if we masturbate or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> that's that's kind of my take. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I am part of the community, and, and I grew up with a traditional Jewish education. And, and some of the primary values 
are justice and healing the world. Mm. Um, in Hebrew, it's gimilut chasadim. It's one of the, the three pillars upon which you know Judaism uh, arrives, arrives uh, 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 education in our history, um, good works, and repairing the world. Um, good work slash devotion and repairing the world. And and I think that it's no coincidence that so many uh, paradigm-crushing thought leaders um, have come from uh, my culture. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's part of it, and challenging orthodoxies is what we do, and delving into things in a in a very minute way to deconstruct it um, is is part of our culture as well. And so all that stuff very much influences uh, the way that I see the world. Um, also, I am the grandchild of Holocaust survivors and Russian revolutionaries, and uh, that history sits in me and um, pushes a kind of revolutionary spirit that I have. Mm. No, that's that's amazing. And, you know, in, in listening to different interviews that you've done on podcast, I I remember you talking about, you know, your, your, your mom's side having been Holocaust survivors. And I was curious if there was some intergenerational trauma there and, and how maybe that shaped you. Well, that was my dissertation was generational trauma. Wow. Um, definitely. I mean, the, I have to think for a second, because the, the question is deeper than I was, than I was anticipating, which is okay. Um, I just got to kind of reconfigure my thoughts around it. Yeah. Take your time. Yeah. You know, the, the generational trauma, I think, and this kind of was communicated in many ways. It was, you know, don't let, we survive this. So make sure that you proudly be yourself, Mm. but don't do it too loudly or else they're going to see you and kill you. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. So there was this constant walking the fine line between being proud of who we were and hiding who we were. And I think that also plays very much into the way I was raised around uh, being an ADHD -er and my neurodivergence is, you know, we love that you are passionate and interested and can get good grades, but stop moving the way you want to move and, and stop being forgetful. And, and if you're having difficulties with things, you know, you're, we're going to rule you with an iron fist and make sure that you, you know, get in line because we don't want you to stand out too much. Right. Yeah, no, I, I could only imagine what, what that led to in terms of masking and, and, and otherwise, and, and maybe we can get into that in just a moment. Um, I, I think where, where I really want to go is for you to help me and my listeners learn more about what, you know, what you call neurodiversity, which, you know, by the way, is, is one of the things that's most important to me, both as someone who was diagnosed with Tourette's and OCD, I, I, I don't consider myself autistic, but probably 95 of my clients, 95% of my clients are. And I yeah. see so many of their traits in myself as well. So I, I clearly identify as neurodiverse. Uh, j- just so you know, it's something that's very important to me. Um, one of my passions. Yeah. And and so so what does that mean to you? I was, was going to say that, uh, that just a, a potentially pedantic uh, correction. 
uh, neurodiverse is a characteristic of a group. A person is neurodivergent. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So it's like saying I work with diverse populations. Well, that means you work with everybody. If you say I work with divergent populations, you're saying I work with people who are different from the norm. Got you. No, that's that's a helpful correction. Thank you. Yep, sure. Um, so neurodiversity is a, is a fact of life. It is a uh, the reality that we have different brains and different ways that our brains are organized and different skills and ways of being creative. And the neurodiversity paradigm looks at these differences from a social justice perspective in the same way that you'd look at uh, the way that, uh, you know, diversity and dynamics and power structures affect people uh, from a racial diversity perspective or a sexual gender diversity perspective or cultural diversity perspective. And, and we kind of see the different ways people are uh, their neurologies are results in various forms of marginalization when um, the world is made for a very, let's say world is made, our cultures and the way that the world is organized um, is around a very typical and average way of thinking and of being. And it, it influences our schools, our laws, the way that therapy is done, um, what is defined as disorder by psychiatry um, and it leads to uh, interventions that are dehumanizing abusive um, anti-humanistic etc yeah no that's 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 really powerful um, what, what one of the things that that I thought I, I could do is to read this little paragraph um, that, that I wrote in a blog, about my experience with this community, and I wanted to see if it resonated with your approach, and I think it'll help us get into things like shame and masking and and different things that you're so passionate about. Um, mm. So a couple months ago in a, in a little blog entry, I wrote, over the years, I've noticed that many of my autistic teen clients have developed an identity structured by surveillance. And what do I mean by this? My autistic clients have spent most of their life having authority figures and peers watch them and point out what they're doing wrong or how they're different. Parents have watched them and corrected their emotional outbursts. Therapists have analyzed their patterns and corrected their behavior. Teachers have studied them and corrected their social interactions or lack thereof. Peers have observed them and poked fun at their odd eccentricities. Many of the clients that come into my office are tired. They're tired of the constant surveillance and the lingering feeling of inadequacy that comes with it all. My clients are weary of being watched and reminded of how they do not conform to the social norms. This incessant surveillance often leads to low self-esteem, a shame-based self-concept, and little to no confidence. What most of my clients need is to be seen and not watched. And so I just wanted to see if that resonated with you and if that could be sort of a launching pad into kind of further conversation, Joel. Hundred percent. You are speaking about. Um, I don't know if this is an official term or not, but um, what, one of my favorite uh, resources, websites for chronicling an autistic experience and providing advocacy for autistic people, is uh, neuroclastic.com. Um, indispensable resource. And the, there's an article on there about uh, they they named it guardrailing, 
And I don't know if this is something they made up or if it's actually from disability studies, but that's what you're talking about, is uh, being neurodivergent means having your your movement, your emotions, your way of being constantly being corrected, constantly being guardrailed. And the the soul-destroying, self-esteem-destroying um effect of that is 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 a form of trauma and it creates people who are fundamentally out of touch with who they are what their needs are what their emotions are etc yeah right on yeah and and so if, if we were to kind of talk about how shame grows in this community how, how would you speak to that what, what's been your experience you know working with clients who who develop that kind of shame-based identity It's a uh, multifaceted question. So the, the, the first place that my brain goes to is um, one of my all-time favorite psychoanalytic thinkers, uh, Donald Winnicott. Oh, yeah. And there's a couple of things. First of all, Donald Winnicott wrote about uh, how our spontaneous gestures as children are echoes of our true selves interacting with the world. And when those spontaneous gestures are pathologized, held, met with shaming, it creates deep wells of shame within Mm. ourselves. And, you know, he sets up a really cool thought experiment, you know, when he's writing about this. Um, you know, in this, it's he has two infant children and their mothers. This is psychoanalysis in the you know forties, so of course it's the mothers. Sure, it can be any parent. Um, and you know, the, he sets this up where the child is showing energy and joyfully kicks and kicks the parent in the gut, and both parents go oof and grab the child's foot, but the emotional valence of parent one is you know, how dare you hurt me? What's wrong with you? And the other one is, um, wow, I'm surprised at your strength. You know, in both, in both situations, there's a boundary in both situations. There is a stopping of the movement, but one appreciates it for the strength and the other one is offended by it. Mm. And, and the way that people are offended and, and control the way that people move and their natural expressions over time creates this feeling that I am not good enough, that everything I do must be police and therefore everything inside of me is, is wrong. And when I'm working with clients like this, they can have complete meltdowns even when I start to allow them to just open up what their body wants to do because they're flooded with all the times that they're corrected. They're flooded with, with such extreme anxiety that even, you know, checking into the fact that they want to move, you know, flap their hand brings up so much trauma and so much pain. Mm. Um, but that's probably the second part is one of, is, is based on that. One of the things that I like to do with people is start with their bodies and kind of say, what does your body want to do? Do we want to even be sitting down in this room face to face? Maybe we want to walk. Maybe we want to pace. Maybe we want to go outside and smell the flowers. Maybe we want to, um, you know, drink some water. You know, what do you want to do? You know, 
Are you, are you sitting here face to face because that's the social convention of therapy or are you doing that because you really want to do that? Yeah, no, I love that. Man, the, the, the amount of times I've gone out for a walk or just paced with them or we've just walked around in circles around my table mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it just made them so much more comfortable than, yeah, just sitting face to face. Right. Now, you know, when, when, I, when I do think about shame in this community, I mean, I, I think about masking and, and I don't know anyone else that, that could probably speak to that more powerfully than you. Like, what what do you understand as masking? How does it develop? And maybe how do you help someone kind of through that? Oh, yeah, we're, we're talking about it right now. It's 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 masking, it's putting on a neurotypical mask, so stopping your body from doing what it wants to do, uh, talking about things that you feel are socially appropriate to talk about. Um, oftentimes, it, it will even be such minutia, especially with autistic people, of, all right, look at this person for three seconds, then look away. Make sure that you smile. All right, is I'm smiling for three seconds. All right, is that too much smiling? Am I creepy now? Okay, I'm not smiling anymore. Um, and if you can imagine that kind of micromanaging of our expressions of the way we move, of what we want to talk about, um, the cognitive load and the emotional load that that uh, uh, puts on us, it means that everyday existence is so much more stressful and draining than it is for you know people who you don't have to mask um who who easily fit into social structures and socializing in a way that many uh neurodivergent people don't sure and so over time we have good research on this um high masking uh results in depression, anxiety, and even suicidality. Mm. Then we have to kind of go to the fact that you said about therapists is so much of what therapists are taught to do, and especially within like the applied behavioral analysis industry, is teaching masking. It's teaching people how to look regular. And there might be some short-term gains in that, approval from teachers. You might be able to make some friends. But if you're making friends based on a fundamentally false self, it never internalizes. It never becomes a real sense of this person loves me for me. They love me for the mask that I'm putting on. Right. Right? And so it leads to alienation from self and others over time, uh, which has devastating psychological consequences. Mm. No, that's really well said. Joel, I don't know if this has been your experience, but over the years, a, a big piece of the initial stage of building the relationship with my clients is giving them permission not to mask, even in a therapeutic setting. I, I think a lot of them have been through behavioral analysis and other kinds of therapies that weren't affirming of their you know, neurodivergence. And so when they respond in a way that to me seems like they're just kind of telling me what I should be hearing or, or they're, they're relating in a way that I think seems like this is something trained from another therapist. We just have a conversation mm-hmm. about it's okay to, uh, you know, get really upset with me right now or to tell me that I'm wrong or, or sure, to laugh sure. when, when you think maybe it should be inappropriate. So I think yeah. that's kind of a freeing aspect of that type of therapy. Definitely. And, and especially with um, autistic folks, their special interests tend to be incredibly tied to 
in a projective way sometimes to their identity, to the internal struggles that they have. And so paying attention to what they choose in their media and how they express it, there's a lot of really amazing material there. And sometimes you're not going to get to it for a long time. Um, you know, I've had clients who had such profound trauma and masking and difficulties connecting with others. And for literally a year, all we would do is talk about their favorite anime. Absolutely. We would watch the favorite anime in the session. We would, you know, roll over the characters and talk about what they liked about the characters and, you know, pretend that we were in it and and just play along uh, in in that world and then suddenly they're opening up to me. Suddenly that's, that's you know, and, and that's another lesson also is I think uh, autistic people naturally bond around their interests. That is how they form relationships. It's not through small talk. Um, it's through deep diving with each other on things that interest them. And so if you switch that and you actually, you know, do that, that is rapport building. Yes, when, when, when you, in a, in a moment, I, I, w- I want to get into what you see as the pillars of, you know, neurodivergent affirming therapy. I, when you said one of those was, you know, connecting over shared interest and incorporating that as a foundational aspect of the therapy, I, I just started smiling and, and maybe even shed some tears because I have felt alienated from other therapists when I talk about how much of that is a part of my therapy, that it's not just fucking around or wasting time. It's it's the heart of the therapy with them in this kind of connective yeah. relational approach. I was so grateful that that someone of your stature was was also kind of articulating the same thing. And I had to just come to it through trial and error and, and really paying attention to what autistic people were saying about the way that they uh, uh the way that they are in life. And the, the other part of it is engaging with these passions is a primary way of self-regulating and self-regulation is how we deal with the intensity of life and how we're able to take an experience, modulate it and learn. So when these folks have been trained not to engage in this way you've actually taken away their primary way of engaging with the world and self-regulating and learning um and so you know when i when i'm talking to clients and they're just so overwhelmed they can't take anything it's like all right we're gonna pause and you know tell me about your favorite horror movie for the next 10 minutes you know unmask completely like okay okay blah 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 blah, 10 minutes and then suddenly they're okay and then they can we can proceed Oh yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've witnessed moods change completely. Just eyes open yep. up. Just you, you can just tell that they feel alive and connected. Yeah. So, what, what would be some of the other sort of foundations of a neurodivergent affirming practice in your, in your perspective? So the the first thought that I have is um, accommodation over changing the person. Um, even let, let, let's say something for OCD, right? Sure. So OCD is very typically seen as a as a only a negative thing, um, something that has to be changed about somebody, and and there are aspects of it which probably do, but also we know that. There's a lot of it. It's a brain style that uh, you can look at it from strengths based things. And the first thing that I'm going to do as a neurodiversity affirmative therapist is 
you know, unlike a CBT therapist, you might jump in there and start challenging right away. Right, right. I would accommodate the needs of the person. So it's like, you know, do you want to wear a mask during session? Does that feel better for you? I want to I want to work on rapport and accommodations for their psychological needs first before talking about, you know, what what can um, what can we change? And it's the same way with with you know all my autistic clients who have sensory differences. Do we need to turn the lights down? Um, is the couch temperature feel comfortable? Do you want a blanket? Um, do you want me to be looking at you, or should we sit? you know, side by side or back to back. Um, what's the noise like in here? Do we need to put on a white noise machine? Uh, are the smells okay? You know, I have some of these smelly Play-Doh things that my daughter made and are we, you know, maybe we can break them out and have different smells in the room. So starting from a sensory perspective and accommodating the sensory needs can be incredibly I love that. Uh, helpful. Yeah. Do, do you find that it can even change at times? What, what they may need mm-hmm. in one session may be different than another? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of that stuff can be uh, modulated by stress. So sensitivities can go really high when they're stressed and when somebody's very stressed. Um, and then sometimes preferences may, may change over time. Once they start unmasking, they may realize that some of the things they've been doing are actually things that they don't like. And they might find new things that they like. Yeah, no, that's that's well said. I've, I've found that to be the case as well. So. Yeah. So being sensitive to their sensory needs and accommodating is sort of the first pillar. What, what's the second one? What, what, what else do you think about when it comes to a neurodivergent affirming sort of model of care? Well, it's, it's hard to say because, um, you know, neurodivergence literally encompasses every way that somebody can be different neurologically. So it encompasses, you know, um, fetal alcohol syndrome and epilepsy and uh, cerebral palsy and, uh, you know, schizophrenia. So, so you know, the, there are different things that every neurodivergent person is going to need um, and different ways to do it. But I, I think, you know, the, the, the overall idea is accommodation, uh working with the person in a way that doesn't automatically assume pathology, uh, finding strengths, um, um, meeting clients where they're at radically instead of changing them. Um, what else? One that you've talked about before, which it's, it's led me to go back and kind of change some of the language on my website because it really reflected how I actually did therapy. I just didn't have the language for it is to mm-hmm. first and foremost, honor their lived experience. They're, they're almost taking a phenomenological approach where you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're truly honoring and listening to what they're saying from their perspective, rather than trying to fit them into some kind of psychological or therapeutic box. Right. Right. And this is where it gets interesting because there is, a so there, there's this thing called epistemic injustice, which sure. is essentially yeah, it's it's the injustice that comes from lack of knowledge. And when somebody has gone their whole life as let's say an ADHD person, and they've been in therapy for decades for you know trying to fix things about themselves, and and they think that it's trauma based because um, the, the 
as much as I love the trauma-informed crowd, and it's a very important part of um, psychology, you have people who should know better, like Gabor Mate, saying that ADHD is caused by trauma and familiar trauma. No, it's not. It's caused by genetic differences that showed up 200,000 years ago and are, exist in other ape species as well. Right. It's not, it's not intergenerational trauma or trauma. So you have people who are working on their personality, working on themselves for decades of therapy, and really they just need to be told, no, your brain just works differently and it has its own way and its own order. Um, and if you're forcing yourself into you know, the, the proverbial – uh, you know, square peg, round hole, of course, it's always going to feel bad. Um, but if we can adjust the hole and accept that you're just a different peg, um, you know, things are a lot easier. So in a way, I don't mind defining somebody or at least offering a different way to define oneself based on what I know from my expertise, but I don't hit them over the head with it. Like I think a lot of diagnosticians do, um, it has to be an evolving, you know, discussion that can, you know, the diagnostic categories and ways of understanding can, can certainly change. Sure. Well, and, and, and I think focusing on the client's lived experience actually connects to something that just this week I've been wrestling with, in, in accessing some of your material, you, you've turned me on to Damian Milton and his mm -hmm. idea of the double empathy problem. Yes. I, I, I wondered if you could kind of maybe set that up for us. Like how, how has autism been understood in terms of empathy and what, what do you think he's doing in his scholarship? That's pretty radically different. Yeah. So we, we have to go back to, uh, I mean, some of the people who originally worked with autism, um, and, and very specifically, uh, uh, Simon Baron Cohen, right. Um, in England who means well and gets some things right, but some of his ideas have been incredibly pathologizing and have set back autistic people decades. And one of the things that he came up with, and that, that, you know, even the original conceptualizers of autism is that autistic people don't have empathy, right. um, that they, it, and it turns out that they actually do. Um, they just don't perform empathy culturally as is expected. And so what people expect in order to feel that empathy often doesn't come and the judgment from the majority is that autistic people don't have empathy, uh, that autistic people don't have social skills, that autistic people don't have fill in the blank. But when you get autistic people together, um, when you see couples that are, you know, both of the members are autistic, they are in tune with each other. Oh, they yeah. understand each other really well. Uh, I, the, the connection that my wife and son have intuitively without words is so deeply empathic and, mm. and it's something that I don't have access to. And so now we have uh, this idea of the double empathy problem. It is not that autistic people lack empathy. It's they don't know how neurotypical people work or allistic people work. That's a, a word for, for non-autistic people. Yeah. I didn't and, know that word until this week. So I'm, I'm grateful that you, you kind of turned me on to that as well. Right, right. I love the word. It's it was it kind of came about as a joke. Okay, it stuck um, because you know the the word autism, the A U T, is I guess the Greek word for kind of 
within oneself. That's correct. Yeah. And and Alos is is other is other. Yeah. So that was really right. cool. So it, yeah. So it's uh, it was kind of like a, a a joke on how inaccurate the term autism is in the first place, but it, it stuck. So non autistic means allostic. Um, and it's important because um, someone like me is not neurotypical, but I'm also not autistic. So I am allistic, but I'm not neurotypical. Um, and that's an important distinction. So, yeah, so it turns out that uh, that autistic people aren't very good at reading, empathizing with, and and engaging socially with allistic people. But allistic people are just as terrible as doing that with autistic right. people. And autistic people in a group together are incredibly efficient and they, they create amazing things and they, they jive together and they understand each other and they have deep wells of empathy for each other and they care for each other. I mean, every autistic person is probably raised by an autistic parent and not every one of them is, feels misunderstood and neglected and abused, right? Right. Uh, in fact, most of them probably quite love their parents. Um, so this this idea of autistic people lacking empathy, it's, it's, it's not true at all. It's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how they perform empathy. Mm. And I remember at one point, you, you know, you talked about, I think it was Damian Milton's research about the, the telephone game experience or experiment. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder if you could talk about that because that was pretty powerful. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember it. I think essentially it was, you know, they that game telephone where you all sit in a circle and whisper something, and then by the end the message has been degraded into something completely, you know, outlandish, and everybody laughs. Uh, they played this game um, with groups of all autistic people and neurotyp and allistic people, and then mixed groups, and they found basically that in the mixed group uh, there was a ton of degradation of the original um, message, but in the only autistic or only allistic group, it was similar levels of degradation. Um, And so it was kind of this like playful way of looking at this idea that it's just communication differences and not necessarily that one is worse than the other because both the allistic and autistic groups had the same level of, of, you know, the message breaking down. But once you mix them up, it was just way, way worse. Sure. Oh man, I love that. So an, another scholar that that you have turned me on to is Nick Walker. She just seems fucking awesome with her neuroqueer yeah. idea and everything she writes about. I, I was hoping you could maybe speak to your relationship to her and her scholarship and what it's meant for your practice. Uh, yeah, she is considered would probably be considered a foremother of um, of the neurodiversity movement as it is today, uh, along the lines of uh, uh, Cassian. I forget. I can never pronounce her last name. I'm not enough, Sasu or something like that, um, and, and, and some others. And their scholarship has really defined the main ideas of this movement. Um, they've come up with the basic vocabulary, with the basic um, um, concepts. They've created scholarship around it. Um, and, and when I was first figuring all this stuff out about myself, uh, Nick's work just touched me in a way that was you know, very meaningful. And as, as I've spoken with Nick over the years, it, it turns out that we have a lot in common. We both uh, came from 
um, loving Donald Winnicott's work and how that influenced us. Uh, we're both, you know, Jews who come from a social justice perspective. Um, and uh, we're both obviously neurodivergent people who had to, you know, break through our own, um, you know, childhoods in order to, you know, become accepting of ourselves. Yeah. Well, and, and with his concept of, of neuroqueer, I know that you've kind of riffed on the idea of neuroqueering spaces. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I was hoping you could kind of elaborate on that. Sure, sure. Uh, so neuroqueer is a term that she coined, um, which has kind of multiple meanings. Uh, one is there is a significant overlap in the queer and neurodivergent population. Um there is some argument over this next statement in the community, but in my opinion, I think queerness is a form of neurodivergence. If queerness comes from our neurology, which ostensibly it does, um, it's you know located in the brain and how the brain interacts with the body, then anything that diverges neurologically from the norm is considered neurodivergent. So it's and neurodivergences tend to coexist. So we have a lot of people who are OCD and autistic, ADHD and and autistic, right. or ADHD and dyslexic, and and these brain differences tend to you know coexist. So it's really no surprise that um, there's incredibly high levels of queerness in the neurodivergent community, um, especially so it seems in the autistic community, where maybe some like thirty to forty percent identify as queer in some way. Um, you know, compared to maybe five percent to ten percent of the general population. Yeah, from my um, clinical experience, I, I've definitely seen that throughout the years. Yeah, yeah, and so neuroqueer is kind of like this term that kind of weds that these experiences seem to overlap and and, and influence each other, um, and then as more of kind of a, a verb. There's this idea of being neuroqueer. So just as you know when. The LGBTQIA uh, community was, you know, daring to queer straight spaces by wearing loud clothes, different clothes, um, doing drag, holding hands, being proudly out. There's this idea of of gaining acceptance and self empowerment and forcing the culture to accommodate by queering spaces that typically wouldn't be friendly to queer people, even if you get some kind of, uh, you know, backlash from it. Sure. And in the same way, we're looking at neuroqueering spaces by having neurodivergent people be out taking off their masks, um, acting in uh, neuroqueer ways in spaces that otherwise wouldn't have been allowed. Um, and an example I've given in other interviews and I'll give here is, um, you know, pre-COVID uh, when everything was in person, I can't sit at a conference for hours and and listen. I, it's just oh, impossible. God, that sounds awful. <laughs> it is. So what I would do is I would bring foot rollers and I'd take off my shoes and put them to the side and I would put my feet on the rollers and roll them back and forth and I'd have like uh, like hand exercise things. Sometimes I put rubber bands around my fingers and like stretch them out. 
because uh, I need that kind of uh, bodily feedback in order to pay attention. Sure. And whereas earlier in my career, I would probably be shuffling in my seat and doing something in my pocket and getting up. Now I say, I'm ADHD. This is what I do to pay attention. You could either take it or leave it. There you, you know, go. I'm not, I'm not moving, but you can move <laughs> if it bothers you. Sure. Um, and I just kind of let people know around me. So that's kind of neuroqueering a space that usually isn't used to it. I, I love that, Joel. You know, I, I even see it in my own therapy where in the very beginning, I, I tried to be just super still and probably masking in some ways. And now whether, I mean, when I'm seeing someone who's, let's say, neurotypical, I'll tell them, look, I'm going to use these fidgets as much as, as you can. I, I have OCD. And so I'm going to check my clothes sometimes and it's going to seem fucking mm-hmm. weird to you. But, you know, we, we, if it really bothers you, we can talk about it. But this is kind of who I am. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. That's exactly right. And, and doing that might shock people at first. So it also models a way to be self-accepting and to even if somebody's neurotypical, they're engaging in ways to be more socially acceptable and mask. And, and the fact is, and this is kind of true of neurodivergent people is what's good for neurodivergent people ends up being good for the entire population. When we allow kids to play, to move, to accept how they are, to learn how to communicate with all sorts of people, to check in with what their bodies need, to stop placating a, you know, an average capitalist based school system. uh, We find that people's creativity and their aliveness increases so much. And so that, that's kind of one of the things that I've learned is that the neurodivergent people are the canaries in the coal mine for things in the culture that need to change to accommodate everybody. Yeah. And, and even though I am sometimes at a loss and don't know how to make the sort of systemic changes that need to happen, I, over the years I've realized, yeah, it's, it's less of a sick soul kind of idea, if I can use that language, and more of a sick society kind of kind of thing and this is where the social justice yeah. comes in yeah. it's i think it's the outside it's the structures the systems that need to be reshaped rather than the person's interior life 100 mm-hmm. now i know that um in different interviews you've alluded to lev vygotsky and um at least what i've accessed you didn't go too deep into it he's one of my favorites and was just wondering uh-huh what he means to you, how you've incorporated some of his thinking in terms of your own self-identity and your own work as a therapist. So I I don't know much about him other than kind of the basics that we learned about the proximal uh, area of development and scaffolding. And um, I, I just like the idea. I think that meeting people where they're at, identifying where their growth edges are and providing a way to um, grow into those growth edges is so more use, so much more useful than, you know, a, uh, a, you know, core curriculum or a, uh, you know, the average of what every person is supposed to be. Um, And, and letting children kind of lead the way to their learning. Mm. Um, you know, I'm very much in disagreement with the school system that has a, a standard curricula for everybody. It, it, it doesn't allow people to pursue what their strengths are and to really fall in love with the learning process. And when we can identify what are the areas that kids love and they want to learn, um, and we provide that 
those scaffolding for them so that they can grow on their own, um, or maybe not on their own. That's not the right way to do it. Grow in the in the way that they want to. Um, you find that they they grow exponentially compared to kind of this more compulsory um, based education that we have. Yeah, no, I love that. You know, and, and I'm right there with you and and what you've sort of gleaned from Vygotsky. I I like his idea of relating to people to children a head taller than they are, sort of mm-hmm. slowly drawing them forward in their development and believing that they can sort of yeah perform in a very creative way in in ways that they may not imagine in the moment ne- ne- yeah. ne- never forcing them in, into anything or, or moving too quickly but inspiring them to yeah act as though they're a head taller than they are that that's been really important to me yeah and and i think if we if we circle back to the job of being a therapist i often tell my supervisees the best therapy the best interpretations are one half step beyond where your client is. Mm. Um, if you're if you're more than that, they're going to reject it. They're not going to so see true. it. And when you are when you are like us, neurodivergent people do tend to be very systemic thinking, and we can be very intelligent, almost to the detriment of ourselves, mm. where we can see things that are going to happen. We can see the patterns, especially once we become seasoned, and we jump in too quickly. It's, it behooves us to slow down and really just be that half step beyond where the person is and stick with them and their lived experience until that half step becomes obvious, and then you push them that little half step. And that's all you can do. <laughs> yes, I, I love that. Now, now, one of the things that, that I want to bring up in light of that is you've talked about maybe kind of struggling with therapeutic goals or, you know, benchmarks at times that may, maybe you have a little bit of a different approach, which which is something that really resonates with me as well. Uh-huh. Um, are you talking about like like kind of smart goals type yes. stuff? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, luckily, I don't have to work with insurance companies. I don't either. And so, so I never have insurance-based, DSM-based stuff from, like, the Wiley Planner and all that. Sure. Um, um, you know, the goals that we come up with are humanistic ones, are, are holistic ones, um, you know, things like I want to connect to people better. Um, I want to, you know, have more passion in my life and they're, they're co-constructed. Um, and, and oftentimes people come in and they just say, I don't even know what I want to work on. I go, okay, right. <laughs> just tell me about you then. Yeah. Yeah. We can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So there's no, there's no pressure to have to quantify everything that we do. Um, and, and indeed I think that, pressure has actually made uh, our profession worse. Mm. No, I agree. Now, here's one that I wrestle with is, you know, even neurodivergent parents wanting their teenagers, I work with a lot of teenagers, to be more social, to have more friends. And, you know, I have my thoughts on that, but I'm curious how you tend to think about that for your neurodivergent clients. Mm-hmm. When when we mm-hmm. kind of live in this culture that's so, I guess, 
and I, and I love being relational, but maybe relational in, in a way that doesn't quite fit them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so it, it's important to cultivate community mm. and, but what community means has so drastically changed with the you know, advent of the internet. Right. And, you know, I think the old fashioned now idea that friends are people that you, you know, have over to your house after school. Um, that is not the reality for, I think most people, not only neurodivergent people, um, and then we have to kind of go back to masking. Do you want your kid to be friends with people who they don't actually connect with, who might bully them or take advantage of them, but at least they're in person? You know? Right, right. Or do you want to honor the way your child connects, which is probably through their interests, and you know, see where they're and follow where they're cultivating their own communities. And sometimes that's on Discord, or sometimes it's on Roblox, or sometimes it's on. And I'm seeing these great relationships happening. Um, and you know, so I, you know, tell parents just like you would kind of monitor your child's social interactions in the outside world. This is where you have to go because this is where the social interactions are happening. This is where they're finding their community. Um, and I guarantee you, they're having great relationships in these communities. Oh, yeah. No, I have some wonderful autistic guys who have started these Discord uh, D&D groups mm-hmm. that, that they mm-hmm. connect over and communicate through. And, and they just they just love it. I mean, they would they would much they, they much rather prefer that than something face to face. Yeah. And I, I celebrate that. Right. And I, I tell parents, you know, there's no difference between the cognitive skills and the social skills that develop in a playing football and Fortnite, but at least in one of them, you don't have a risk of concussion. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I, I like that, Joel. <laughs> okay. So do you have time for just two more questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. So th- th- these are ones that I still kind of wrestle with. The-, the first one is how do we honor the fact, and this is a question about autism, that there is a range in terms of like an official diagnosis without using low functioning and high functioning language, which I know can be problematic. How do we acknowledge that there are some that have quite a bit more struggles than others without kind of falling into that dichotomy of low and high functioning? Yeah. Um, There, I can never remember her name. There's an advocate who said, um, High functioning means you ignore my weaknesses and low functioning means you ignore my strengths. Mm. And the problem is those labels are given by people who are looking at it through a neurotypical lens. Um, How well can this person perform neurotypicality? If they can really well, they're high functioning. Well, what's the cost of them doing that? Do you know what happens when they go home after all that masking and they Mm. can't do anything for 10 days after um, because they're in complete meltdown? Yeah, they lose their shit as they should. (laughs) Right, right. And then you have, you know, people, for example, who can't speak. Um, who are incredibly, you know, stimmy and they're going back and forth and they're right. shaking their hands 
Uh, but when they learn text to speech, it turns out that they're absolute geniuses and they actually quite love socializing and being out. And they actually can function really well with just a little bit of accommodations. So, so it's an ableist idea. It, 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 it looks at disability in terms of functioning only and assigns kind of how useful somebody is based on that, that outward presentation. And it doesn't even account for that functioning can go up and down, up and down, depending on, you know, context. Mm. And so instead we talk about what are individual support needs? You know, does this person have a lot of support needs? And if so, in which context do they need those support needs? Um, you know, maybe I am somebody who, listen, I have a, I have a doctorate degree. I run my own business. I'm doing pretty well in life. Um, but if you put me in a standard classroom now and made me read things the way that I used to have to, I, I couldn't do it anymore. Gotcha. I, I have too much. I would need support. I would need some, I would need a note taker. I would need an admin person. I would need a book on tape. Um, and I would need somebody to sit with me and make sure that I'm sticking with it because in that situation, I am functionally useless. Mm. Um, but as a therapist running my own business, doing trainings in a dynamic way, I kick ass. I love so it. Am I low functioning or high functioning? Both. <laughs> there you go. That's good. I really like that. That's really helpful, Joel. So my, my, my other question is, um, and, and, and I, I hadn't really thought about this until you brought it up in an interview. And, and I'll set it up by, by saying lately I've been wrestling with how something like capitalism creates so many issues for us as a society. I mean, neurodivergent or not, you, you, you've talked specifically about parents who have this internalized capitalism that then sort of influences expectations on their neurodivergent children. And I'm wondering yeah. if you could kind of like speak to that and, and ways that you've kind of worked with that problematic. Cause I see it every well, day. It, 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 it goes back to this idea that people are a form of capital, mm. that people are meant to work for a living, to generate wealth for either themselves or for the common good. Um, and that is anti-humanistic. Mm. That is not what people are about. We are feelings creatures. We are connecting creatures. We are not worker bees. Um, and that fundamental assumption, I think, sticks with so many people in our you know, culture. What if my kid never is able to work? Right. Okay, so maybe we could train them to be a McDonald's worker and – they're working their ass off 40 hours a week to make the CEO of McDonald's richer and their life isn't improved at all as a result. And they're more stressed and they're having meltdowns all the time. Well, at least they're putting in a hard day's work and paying their taxes. Mm. Who does that? Who does that actually help? Sure. God, that's a haunting question. <laughs> right. Right. And so I think there's so much of that. You know, I don't want my kid to be disabled. I don't want them to be. And then we also talk about like the hyper American independence, right? Like my kid needs to be independent. Well, why? Why does your kid have to be independent? Where does that come from? Is that the way human beings really are? Right. Um, I saw a meme on Twitter or somebody. I don't, I don't, I wish I, I remembered names. This is my own thing. I can never remember names. <laughs> um, but it was brilliant. It basically like 
99% of all of our uh, problems stem for the fact that we're doing things by ourselves that humans typically did in groups. That's so good. I, I can't remember who this was, but I, I, I get into sort of like masculinity studies. And this one psychologist said, we need to move from a model of rugged independence to resilient interdependence. Absolutely. Yeah, me, I've heard that to, one too. Yeah. To, to, yeah. to me, that captures what, what humans are sort of built for. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the European white capitalist notion and, and, you know, it comes from, I can't believe I'm saying this because in my, in my older years, I was a, a very strong libertarian minded capitalist person. <laughs> sure. And same I, here. <laughs> so, so it's funny to hear me talk like this. <laughs> yeah, the, the instituting of, you know, private property and fencing off things and living in separate cordoned, houses instead of in a more tribal structure has contributed to so much isolation and so much stress. Um, and, and really, um, um, what's the word unrealistic ideas of what parenting is. Mm. Um, in my Facebook group, somebody asked recently, you know, I'm working with a parent who, um, is is sensory sensitive and are just triggered all the time by their child and is just filled with shame and they can't be a good enough parent. How do you help them? And people are coming up with all these individual interventions. You can, you know, call an OT, do this, take time to rest, do that. And I'm thinking, get three other parents, drop your kid off with those parents, take mm. some time to rest. And, you know, that's how we're supposed to do it communally. Yeah. Right. No, I it love that be on one parent, especially if you have a disability as a parent, you should be able to say, I can't do it today. Here's my community, you know, take my kid and show them a good time. Absolutely. You know, you know, throughout the years, I've, that's an interesting point. I've noticed that the parents that seemed like they were flourishing and, 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 and managing and, and directing sort of their life in a way that seemed fulfilling they were the ones that were really socially connected to other parents and gave each other grace and allowed their, their kids to spend nights at each other's houses. And, and yeah, they had more of like a tribal view than just this rugged individualism. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess before, can I ask you before we sign off, is there anything you'd want to say about your Facebook group? My wife and I have just joined and we love it so far. I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you have like a pitch for it. Um, there, it's not so much a pitch, but um, I mean, this is, I don't know when this is going to come out, but we're actually, so, so the next step in this is we're going to convert the group to kind of like a Patreon structure. It's going to be very cheap to be okay. part of, but I'm finding that in order to do the work I need to do, I need it to become something that creates income so I can step away from my practice sure. and really not only moderate, but also create more resources. So we're going to have symposia. We're going to have, um, um, spreading the wealth to other advocates and consultants. Um, we're going to have a therapist directory. We're going to do a, a lot of things with the intent of actually changing the world and building a advocacy organization that can do this on a global level. Um, is right now the neurodiversity movement is a lot of really great grassroots uh, organizations um, 
but we need some kind of uh, way of, 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 of creating not a centralized power structure, but a place where people can come in order for their collective action to be used. Sure. Um, and I'd like to be part of spearheading something mm. like that. Mm. Oh, I love that. No, then definitely count us in. We, we, we'd love to be a part of that. Now, okay, I, I know I lied to you because I said, you know, last question like two ago, but there's one more that, that's sort of popped up <laughs> to kind of go back full circle to even your sort of Jewish, prophetic, iconoclastic roots. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sometimes mourn the different groups that I get a part of because they almost kill themselves through this narcissism of small differences. Yeah. If, yes, if, 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 if you could prophetically like speak to the neurodiversity movement, which I realize by definition is extremely diverse. Are, are there any mm-hmm. patterns or, or sort of toxic things that you see that maybe we could work on? Yeah. I mean, all these social justice based groups are full of traumatized people mm. who are constantly fending off um, their triggers and constantly. Um, and there's a lot of triggering stuff that happens. So it's this, real delicate um, balancing act between I hear your trauma and the way that you are um, demanding your trauma be paid attention to is disrupting the group goals. Wow. Well, and, said. and I have to, and, and, and people don't like it, but I have to flex the power sometimes. And I always do it dem- democratically. I have two co-admins, uh, both who are autistic, uh, both who are uh, queer. One is a, a woman of color, and we discuss these things. But I have had to, because I, I grew up very wary of my own power, mm. and I think that's good. And I also accept that being a, a white male, there is an inherent way that that we can wield our power that's very harmful. Yes. And so if I keep it not about my ego, if I keep it about the group, and this is the group goal and the vision that we have collectively built as a group, um, then there's kind of this tacit approval that I can flex a little bit here and there. And I've had to do that. Um, You know, sometimes we need to bring – for lack of a better word, dad energy, whatever the parent doesn't have to be gendered, but that energy of the parent who says, these are the boundaries that create safety and I'm going to maintain them. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautifully said, Joel. Okay. So I'm not going to lie to you anymore that 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 was the the end of my questions. (laughs) Um, I guess, would you mind, and and I'll say I'll, I'll include all these links in the show notes so people can access all this stuff. But uh, I always ask the guests at the end to just end with the line, continue the conversation, which captures the spirit of the podcast. So can you just end with those words? Continue the conversation everywhere. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me and there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today, and as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.